0: Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors,
1: the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare.
0: Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today, we're discussing the geopolitical implications of China's One Belt, One Road initiative. My guest today is Ambassador Carl Eikenberry. Ambassador Eikenberry served as the U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan from April 2009 to July 2011. He has also served as the Director for the U.S.-Asia Security Initiative at the Walter Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center at Stanford University. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the American Academy of Diplomacy, and the Institute for International Strategic Studies. He's a graduate of West Point and went on from there to spend a year or two in uniform, including time as the Assistant Army Attaché and Defense Attaché in the United Embassy in China. He's also served as the Senior Country Director for China and Taiwan in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. He is perhaps best known for this audience for his time as Commanding General Combined Forces Command Afghanistan, a role he held from May 2005 to February 2007. Ambassador Eikenberry, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Becky. It's good to be here.
0: Before we start our discussion on the geopolitical implications of China's One Belt, One Road initiative, tell us a little bit about your background in the region. My hunch is that our listeners aren't familiar with your expertise in this area.
1: So Becky goes uh, back to uh, West Point days, and as a West Point freshman cadet way back in 1969, I elected to study Mandarin Chinese, which was a two-year language requirement for cadets, still remains so to this day. And I fell in love with Chinese culture, was fascinated with the language, and then elected to take uh, Chinese my junior and senior years. After I graduated from the military academy, I was to spend uh, many years in uh, East Asia and uh, Central and South Asia. In fact, my first assignment as a young infantry officer was to Korea. The Vietnam War was over, and Korea sounded like the right spot to go for an infantryman. So operational assignments. And then at my six-year point in my Army career as a young captain, I had the opportunity to become an Army Foreign Area Officer. So sent to graduate school at Harvard in East Asia, studies, and uh, then two years of language study in Hong Kong and in the People's Republic. And Becky, from that point on then, my career was a dual-track career, so to speak, where assignments uh, of a political military intelligence nature, such as Assistant Army Attaché, Defense Attaché in Beijing, you had mentioned Office of Secretary of Defense with the China desk under Secretary of Defense Perry, but mixed in with that was a return to operational postings. What I tried to do in my career is bring those two tracks together uh, wherever I could. So I became the director of strategy and plans uh, with the United States Pacific Command when I was an Army Major General. Our focus area, of course, was the Indo-Pacific area. People would say that was an operational assignment, but I have to tell you, I benefited so much in that assignment from my foreign area officer political military experience in East Asia. And then the uh, capstone for me was time in Afghanistan, where previously a lot of time in East Asia, but then from 9-11 on, two military tours and our time as ambassador in Central Asia and South Asia. I went to uh, Stanford, which I recently left in 2011, And my portfolio there was very much US strategy and foreign policy in the Indo Pacific region.
0: So, we were delighted and very grateful to have you come talk to our faculty and students today about China's One Belt, One Road initiative as part of our Middle East Studies program lecture series. Most of our listeners will be familiar with One Belt, One Road, but for those who aren't, can you just give us a quick background on the initiative? When did it start? What are its aims? When we hear China, One Belt, One Road, what should we be thinking?
1: Well, Becky, we associate the Belt Road Initiative, or what we call One Belt, One Road, with President Xi Jinping, who formally begins the Belt Road Initiative in 2013. But uh, I would also, as I talked to uh, your fine group of uh, students and faculty and fellows earlier today, emphasize that The historical underpinnings of Belt Road Initiative really go back much deeper into China's old history. But even in modern history, where President Xi Jinping's predecessors in the 1990s and the first decade of this century were already looking at more ambitious programs to extend China's economic and political influence beyond China's borders to the West. So what is the Belt Road Initiative under President Xi Jinping? And it's a very ambitious program, still evolving, in which the hope is to connect China to the rest of the world commercially, culturally, economically, with also an eye on improving China's security requirements around the world. So huge amounts of financial investment that China is placing right now across what it hopes will be well-developed land corridors that connect China all the way to Europe through Eurasia. And another direction is towards Southeast Asia. Another vector is towards East Africa. And then lastly, uh, now even beginning a, a program of uh, development and investments in the polar area to the north. I think broadly, what we could say is that uh, Xi Jinping, but again, his predecessors and uh, those that work in China's trade and investment areas, they work in uh, the area of national security, what they're hoping for is to have a world that uh, China now is much more connected to through trade, diplomacy, and security that shifts the way wor- the world away from U.S.-centric, a uh, transatlantic kind of domination to one in which China is much more central, but not uh, China's the center of the world. Just a China which is much more central, say, to the world's economy.
0: And so, let me pull on one thing that you just said, and and that is you're referring to this as Belt Road Initiative not the One Belt, One Road Initiative. We had an event uh here at the university a few weeks ago where the speaker did the same thing, talked about BRI, Belt Road Initiative, not One Belt, One Road, O-B-O-R. And uh, Sergeant Major Anthony Spadaro, who is the PACOM senior enlisted leader at PACOM SEL, for those of you on Twitter, he pushed back to a tweet that we had posted about the event and said that it was very important to use the literal translation, One Belt, One Road, because it more accurately reflected China's intention, which was a one-way benefit of this relationship, whereas the more neutral BRI makes it sound like the initiative could be mutually beneficial to the countries that China is reaching out to. Do you see this at stake in that naming debate, or is it semantics?
1: No, I think, Becky, it's a a very interesting question. And so it's back to uh, Shakespeare, what's in a name. And in this case, Belt Road Initiative or One Belt, One Road. In Chinese, it's the same. It's yi dai lu, which literally translates to one belt, one road, so over. And that's how China uh, then presented it to the world. Same characters, but this is how then they said it should be translated. I guess if we look back at uh, Chinese history and uh, the use of the language, I think you could overinterpret. Uh, the significance of one belt one road you know the world was comfortable with the concept of a silk road and uh, silk road well people say it uh, had a terminus in uh, xian or uh, changan in uh, ancient uh, china and it led all the way to uh, rome but that wasn't at all the real uh, silk road the silk road had multiple routes at the far east there was china in the far west at various times there was Renaissance uh, Europe, there was the Arab world, not so much of a defined one road to one other location. And that's very much in the Chinese consciousness, the one belt, one road. It's not every road leads to Beijing. Having said that, though, the People's Republic of China government was called out on this uh, in that Uh, The way that they were casting back in the first days of Belt Road Initiative, 2013-2014, it made it appear that what they were trying to convey is all roads lead to uh, Beijing. So there's been learning that's gone on, learning in terms of business practices as they developed uh, more resources and more possibilities. But I think, Becky, also that in terms of their adaptability, Uh, they did take on the criticism that One Belt, One Road uh, was being cast as all roads lead to Beijing. And so, although they didn't change the Chinese characters, the Chinese characters I don't think convey what it conveyed in the English translation. But nevertheless, they showed the savvy to change the English translation to the Belt Road Initiative. I remember then Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis Uh, said at the Shangri-La Dialogue, I think around 2017, talking about one belt, one road, he said at the Shangri-La Dialogue, well, I don't recognize one belt, one road. There's many belts, there's many roads, and the Chinese did pick up on that, and that was the point where they started to change to belt road uh, initiative. So we can continue, I guess, to uh, keep them uh, honest by uh, pointing out that it's not one belt, uh, one road, or or that their initial characterization was one belt, one road. And maybe we get some advantage by uh, doing that to keep them honest.
0: Well, and I wonder also, if it's one belt, if it's many belts, it certainly is multifaceted. You had talked about the political aspect, the economic aspect, the security aspect. For Americans looking at China's actions, we, I think not being a China expert, but just my perception of, of seeing how things play out in the news. I think we see this predominantly as a security challenge to the United States, though perhaps using economic and informational means of uh, implementing that strategy. How do you see this play out?
1: Well, the evolution of China's geopolitical strategy, it uh, follows recognized historical patterns and uh, we can take a look at uh, the growth of American power before us, the growth of a British power. And the pattern seems to be, be that uh, you begin as a strong commercial power. And as you expand to regions of the world, or maybe you expand globally, that at some point you are now developing a new set of interest as your footprint is uh, far beyond your borders economically and you start to redefine your interest economically, but then the need to be able to defend those interests, so that leads to a military component that uh, lags behind. And there's a synergy here because as you become wealthier, then more assets that have to be defended, but with wealth comes the ability to develop the military wherewithal to defend those. So in China's case, following thus far that familiar pattern, if we look at the 1980s is when China really starts to become intermeshed with the global economy as a big trader. That continues in the 1990s. It, now in this year of 2019, in the 21st century, China, the number one world trader, the number two global investor still behind the United States, but uh, closing the gap, at least for now. It's huge in the world of uh, international finance. And so that growth starts to really appear in the 1980s and 1990s, but we don't see the investments in defense until the mid-1990s because they don't have the interest, but they don't have the resources until then. But where we really start to see an acceleration of military investments that have global consequences is in the 21st century. So the point is that it's inevitable, regardless of U.S. policy or U.S. and partners policy, as long as China continues to increase its global economic equities and has more and more chinese nationals abroad it's going to develop defense capabilities to defend those interests so the question for the united states then is given that how do we respond becky my first point would be in terms of response how do we interpret this we have to respond economically, first and foremost. We have to be more competitive ourselves. We can't look at this global economic competition with China as zero-sum. China's still in a position where they benefit from an integrated world order and an integrated global economic order. So is there the possibility that if we can get China to more commit to global standards and to transparent ways of doing business that we, the United States of America, can be benefiting and the whole world can be benefiting from some aspects of Belt Road Initiative where China's developing infrastructure in places that are going to provide externalities for additional trade and investment for all. The second, with regard to the military component of this, how should we look at chinese growing military presence overseas still outside of uh, china itself pretty limited but now we're starting to see more evidence signs of chinese making investments into military bases abroad these are still ones that are more designed for non-combatant evacuation operations maybe to protect infrastructure investments that are under a local threat or have been expropriated, counter-piracy operations. But we need to also realize that if we continue on a path of competition with China and we start to enter into a kind of new Cold War era, that the investments that China is making, uh, say in places like South Asia and Southeast Asia, which are clearly designed in part to serve as a kind of hedge, should the United States and China have a conflict, and America, for instance, being able to then deny China access or outsiders access to the vital South China Sea, vital to China's economy, that these investments that it's making in South Asia and Southeast Asia, designed to try to serve as a bypass to the Strait of Malacca, we need to look at their longer-term strategy in these terms and then find ways with partners to respond to it. So it's not only an economic response that's required, a diplomatic response, but we do need to keep an eye on their own military activities. And militaries get paid to, uh, to help with deterrence and to be able to respond when diplomacy fails. And it's going to require on the United States side, on our defense side, in order to do this with the new challenges and new locations that China's presenting, these challenges, to have to uh, rethink through some of our strategic assumptions that made us very dominant during the Cold War and for the first several decades of the post-Cold War period, but with China now starting to uh, challenge our ability to continue to operate that way if we're going to be effective.
0: So it sounds to me people will criticize academics uh, for being overly theoretical with not enough connection to the real world, but it seems to me that this is people are going to have to place their bets. Are you realist? Are you more of a, an institutionalist? If you're more of a realist, then we fall squarely in the Bob Gilpin Uh, Hegemonic stability theory that the United States is declining and China is rising and this makes us ripe for armed conflict. And between these two powers, that would be a significant armed conflict. There's a balance of power dynamic in play and the situation is zero sum. So if China is winning, the United States is losing. If you take more of an institutionalist approach we can have positive-sum interactions. We can have China's engagement. The Belt Road Initiative can be an opportunity that maybe China will benefit from it, but so will other people, potentially also the United States. And part of that interaction, particularly if you're constructivist, part of that interaction changes China's interests in the region and could put China in a situation where it's happier or sees greater benefit in being bound by international norms or international processes, or commitments that might also benefit the United States. We can have not a zero-sum game, but a positive-sum game. And there's a lot at stake at, at who's going to be right on this one. Frankly, I'm going to hope it's the institutionalists, because that seems to be the less the less likely to end up in major combat. But are there any indicators? What would lead you to believe that that one of those two camps is probably going to end up being... Right.
1: No, Becca, I think the, the, the question you're asking here is a very important one. There's so much uncertainty about uh, United States' uh, future trajectory right now. There's uncertainty about China's future trajectory. There's huge uncertainties that are increasingly being interjected into the world of foreign policy, economics, and security studies by technology. And the proliferation of exciting new technologies which have national security implications. So, this is a period of time that I can't uh, recall in our recent history, since maybe the uh, first few years of the end of the Cold War, where all of this uncertainty put together should require those that are in the United States Armed Forces, if in the United States uh, government, Uh, in uh, the State Department, in the Treasury Department, all of those who are engaged in international policy, international security, to be sitting down in schoolhouses with the deep academics who don't necessarily have the answer about how does it all come out, may not have the uh, prescription about here's the following policy that you need to adopt. That's not what great academics do. But you had gone through different schools of thought that are out there, and I think, Becky, it's never been more important for those that are in national service, military and government, to spend time looking at these big ideas, these different schools of thought, because they may not give you the answer about what kind of policy should we adopt, but I think, as you had suggested, what they can tell us, where are the opportunities and where are the risks? To illustrate, in the case of China, uh, the United States has great concerns with uh, China. But if you say that what we need to do now is simply have a linear projection into the 22nd century of all that China has accomplished over the last several decades, and with that linear projection, unless we do something about it, China will have 10 times the GDP of the United States by the end of this century and will absolutely dominate the world. But against that, uh, getting those that are into the world of political science and theory, getting historians around the table, and making some obvious points, is that generally autocracies don't end well. That uh, autocrats rarely uh, die very uh, pleasant deaths and that at the end of the day, China is still a autocracy and becoming more so every day, they could prove the exception. They're operating at a scale that was unprecedented in modern world history. But uh, we should think about that. And secondly, when somebody rises, unless they've got a very benevolent, attractive political system, they usually then will excite counterbalancing against them. And so even as China rises, even when we talk about the Belt Road Initiative, we can see Chinese adaptations that are trying to make the model more effective and uh, more pleasing to those that are at the receiving end or the cooperative side of it. But we also see those that are skeptical starting to take their own actions of counterbalancing. So those are two good examples of rather than sit down and talk incrementally, always just in very concrete policy terms, the need to go out into the academy and into the schoolhouses and make sure that your thinking is being challenged, make sure that your assumptions are continually being re-questioned.
0: Mm-hmm. You had recently stated, the following is your greatest concern for the future of uh, U.S.-Sino relations, and it touches on this idea of a potential new Cold War, and I'm going to quote you to you for a minute, which is always fun, but here we go. Uh, You'd said that, I'm most concerned about the blurring of the management of economic exchange, trade and investment issues, and security competition, which includes maintaining a technological advantage over one's competitors. The proliferation of technologies with military applications is complicating efforts of those trying to maintain robust economic relations between China and the United States. If our economies decouple, we will have a new Cold War. Do you see this as what we were just talking about, about these different scenarios? Is that decoupling a piece of that? And what recommendations would you advise to put into effect to make sure that doesn't happen?
1: Well, the first point would be that many will say that the United States administration is trying to uh, decouple from uh, China. I disagree that uh, the starting point for the discussion on decoupling be with the United States administration. President Xi Jinping, after he took office uh, as the uh, party general secretary and the commander of their armed forces and the head of their government, he was very clear that he wanted to uh, decouple yeah, they announced the China 2025 program, which was that China would by 2025 be a leader or a co-leader in every important technology of the world, 10 being identified. If you look at the longer term plans of the Communist Party, programs in the mid in uh, 2035, programs that end in 2049, every one of those programs aspires to see China as the world leader in every technology and every economic sector that has national security implications so a chinese choice perhaps of a degree of decoupling or at least reordering things so that they have the uh, they're on the commanding heights uh, that said uh, the united states aware of linkages now and increasingly aware of linkages in so many different fields with national security that uh, we have long debates going on and appropriate debates about vulnerabilities of supply chains, and are we going to have to move in critical areas such as IT communications into a decoupled world of two systems, the United States and our partners, and China and the rest. At the same time, it's important, I think, Becky, for Americans and for our partners to Uh, be sophisticated and thorough in our analysis of the issues. Let me give you an example of, in the IT world, everyone's familiar with Huawei and this great uh, Chinese telecommunications uh, company that's moved ahead and is offering 5G technologies and services at great prices. The United States, we're telling others, don't buy, but we really don't have anything for those we tell not to buy, we don't have any advice about where else to go, certainly not us because we don't produce it. You'll have others say that, well, the, yeah, Huawei can put out good base stations, but the real growth is going to be in the software inside of the system, and there's grand opportunities there for the United States even cooperating with Huawei or having ventures with Huawei, where we can still keep our competitive advantages. So these kind of debates, I think, important for us to ensure that we're they're fully informed, and that we recognize we're still to use the commanding heights metaphor ourselves on the commanding heights in many different areas. That the world's going to be, the economies are going to uh, interrelate and intersect. That China's economy and the days of boom growth are slowing down. It's looking for alternatives. So are there ways for us to avoid the grand decoupling, finding ways that are in China's interest or national survival, and ourselves looking for opportunities, but maybe most important for ourselves, asking the questions such as, how did we get ourselves to a point that Huawei was the leader of 5G technology in terms of at least infrastructure. What business practices do we need to make in ourselves? What investments, whether that be in education, uh, whether that be in infrastructure, whether that be in terms of changing spending patterns from current consumption to more thinking about the future, whether that be investing more in research and development. So the most strategic answer to China and Belt Road Initiative and decoupling, I think, is first of all, holding a mirror to ourselves as Americans and say, China, you know, you've done us a favor. You forced us to get on a diet and you forced us to go to the fitness center and get ourselves back in shape.
0: So digging into the education element of what that would look like, I am confident that many of our listeners know something about China, but could know more. If folks wanted to learn more about Chinese development generally, One Belt One Road specifically, where would you point them? What sources would you recommend they investigate?
1: Boy, that's a uh, that's a great question, uh, too, uh, Becky. Uh, let me. You know, things are moving so fast and so dynamic. You occasionally get the uh, every year you get a killer book or two. But uh, what I would truly recommend is taking advantage of information technology that's out there well we've got this podcast as an example not that I'm recommending this is the uh, you absolutely recommend this, this the, podcast okay this is the, this is this is the one that's going to uh, to tell you everything you need to know but seriously Becky the uh, I'd make a couple of recommendations. One would be, if I could talk about a specific publication, The Economist. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Economist devotes a lot of its thinking to uh, China, and for now, they're at cutting edge. I'll tell you, I I don't go more than two weeks where I don't see two or three superb articles, some analysis in The Economist that doesn't inform me and I don't share with uh, friends. The second would be that Where I'm seeing some of the best analysis of China is in the more sophisticated institutions that will put together panels and gatherings, and whether that's the Council on Foreign Relations, whether that's CSIS, seriously, whether it's a podcast here at the Marine Corps University, to shop around and look for those, these kind of panel discussions Uh, where you get the right set of experts, in my mind, can be some of the very best. Because we've spent time, a brief period of time here, Becky, talking about the uh, Belt Road Initiative. And just, I would imagine that many viewers or listeners to this are going to say, you know, I I learned something, and something that I learned is this is complex. Mm -hmm. This isn't black and white. There's a lot of nuances So some of these informed panel discussions where you're getting different views, somebody's going to look at the problem one way, and then the next panelist is looking at it orthogonally. Those would be uh, suggestions that uh, I would give.
0: Great. And I love The Economist. It is always a challenge to me to get through it in a week before the next one arrives. One thing that has helped out, and I'll give a plug to them for a second, is they have a podcast as well. And so yes, yes. they will read their stories. So if you have a commute or if you like to, to work out and listen to to a podcast while, while you're doing whatever it is, it's easier for you to listen than it is for you to physically read the paper. The Economist podcast is is a phenomenal way to keep up.
1: I'll tell you, Becky, I'm glad you raised that because I just uh, figured out recently, I was listening to them online and then uh, figured out very quickly how you download. So I've got it sitting on my iPhone and I do travel a lot. And uh, most recently on the marathon flight from Singapore to uh, San Francisco, I managed to get through an entire economist.
0: (laughs) It's a real sense of accomplishment if you can do that. Last question for you, and that is, what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? This doesn't have to be about China. And frankly, I use reading loosely. It could be a a video that you saw that you thought was particularly important for folks in national security to be familiar with.
1: Well, let me uh, uh, take uh, two swings at this. Uh, The first would be that uh, my keen interest right now Is and it's going to remain for some time. Is on U.S.-China science and technology cooperation and uh, competition, and we don't uh, go by more than two or three uh, months. It seems before there's another very good piece that's written, one that uh, on this topic. So one was uh, appeared about a year ago, and it was an assessment of. U.S. telecommunications competition between the United States and uh, China. There was just uh, something recently that came out from Stanford University where it was looking at AI cooperation and competition. So uh, that, I think, is such a important, uh, almost existential security question for the United States. I would recommend to listeners that uh, they find those and spend a bit of time listening to them. Because this is a world we're living in where it's not just those that have got national security policy experience that matter or just those that have deep engineering and science backgrounds that matter. We're increasingly operating in a world in which you need to have, if not a foot in each one of those worlds, at least a foot in one and uh, putting your big toe in the other I don't think that people can really come to inform policy decisions in so many areas in the world unless they have an understanding of the science and technology and engineering implications. Likewise, I feel a lot better when those that are in the laboratories, so to speak, deep in the world of engineering, that they at least have some appreciation of what the geopolitical implications the ethical implications of what they're working on might be. Finally, I would suggest if you want a specific book, a uh, a book that came out several years ago, and it's a book by uh, Frederick Starr called Lost Enlightenment. And it's a book that talks about the area of Central and uh, some of South Asia from the rise of the uh, Arabs in 600-700 A.D. until about the time of Tamerlane in fourteen, fifteen hundred A.D. And the part of the world it focuses on is Central Asia. I found it one of those books that is intellectually uh, transformative to me, even at this stage of uh, life, where appropriately now, as we're talking about Belt Road Initiative, People think about when uh, the old Silk Road, well, there was China, and then there was Rome, and there was a powerful uh, culture in South Asia, and, well, there were the Arab empires. But everyone looks at that Central Asian space of what's today Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, as just a kind of place where these cultural and economic and religious highways were passing through but they were just a transmission belt they were the so-called crossroad of civilizations the star book lost enlightenment talks about this remarkable period of time 700 a.d to about 14 1500 a.d where you learn that central asia itself had a very powerful rich civilization And so, as Starr calls it, he calls it not the crossroad of civilizations, but that entire area being a crossroads civilization itself. So, if you want to get some good background on Belt Road Initiative and learn a part of the world which has been troubled over the last several centuries, and I think underappreciated and may well have a great future, read that book.
0: Great. Thank you. Ambassador Eikenberry, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at @MarineCorpsU. Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Jen Howell and the Marine Corps University Foundation for their support. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University.
1: This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.